morning, everyone. All right, we are going to jump straight into it. I'm going to speak in French today because apparently every language in the world sounds like French. Um, so, pardon my French. Um, we are going to continue on in our upper room discourse uh, this morning, and we are going to be looking at John 15, 1 and 25. And I really believe that God wants to speak um, to individuals today. So keep your ears open, keep your heart open, because God really wants to speak. Let's pray, hey, before we jump in. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you left us words, your teaching that actually brings us life and freedom. And so this morning, God, I pray that your life and freedom will be manifest in this place. It would really be real to people this morning. And so we thank you for that. Holy Spirit, come and speak. Uh, we want to hear from you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Awesome. So um, let's just dive in, hey? So John 15, 1 says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, this is a really famous verse. Um, you probably heard it spoken many times, and, and truly, that it, it is a wonderful passage. I absolutely love it. There was a whole year that I felt like God was saying that I needed to learn how to abide in Him, and I was uh, meditating and focusing on this passage, but coming to it from the viewpoint of the Upper Room Discourse has brought some really interesting insights. Now, one of the things that you can learn about this is that the vine is actually a super common symbol that God uses to describe Israel. In the Old Testament, we see this time and time again, Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 15, Hosea 10. That's just a few examples. Jesus, sorry, God uh, speaks to these, especially um, it tends to be the prophets, and he speaks about the vine uh, being Israel. Israel, you are my vine. However, in the Old Testament, whenever it is referred to, it often is a condemnation on Israel for being a fruitless vine. It is a vine that is useless, and it ends up just being this creeping plant, rather than a plant that actually gives anything of value and of use. And so when Jesus says, I am the, not just the vine, he says, I am the true vine, he's talking about a vine that actually produces fruit. And so this is something that already, this is, this is exciting. Jesus is saying, come on, the Old Testament, Old Covenant people of Israel is being superseded, is being, if you will, uh, um, moved on in a sense, replaced by Jesus, who actually is able to bring fruit into people's lives. And this is going to be a theme that we're going to talk about lots this morning, the idea that we are meant to be a fruitful people. And so as part of that, Jesus then says, and my father is the vine dresser or the gardener. And then he goes on to explain um, that the uh, father will cut off or take away every branch that doesn't bear fruit, 
can we just put that verse on, Anthony, if possible? Um, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes uh, or he cuts back, and that it may bear more fruit. And then Jesus kind of almost does what seems to be a switch, right? And he says, already you are clean because of the words that I've spoken to you, right? Yes, the Father comes and cuts and prunes. Already you are clean because of the words I've spoken to you. Now, what we don't get to see is that in the Greek, the words cut, prune, and clean are a wordplay, which is really quite fun. So the word, and I'm, I'm, I'm butchering the language, but I'm reading it um, uh, as, in a way that it's like, a, um, it's like Eminem that makes words rhyme. So, and so Jesus says I, um, uh, that the Father cuts uh, cuts off every dead branch, and the Greek word is the word ere. Uh, when he trims, it's kathare, and then when the disciples are clean, it's katharoi. All right, so there's ere, kathare, and katharoi. And so there's a little bit of um, yeah, wordplay that is going on here. And the uh, important thing about this is that it's not just a coincidence because all three words are gardening terms. They are not terms that don't relate to each other. In the Greek usage of these words, ere, kathare, and katharoi, it all has to do with gardening. So what Jesus is actually bringing together in all of these things is that, yes, the Father comes, and if you don't bear fruit, you are going to be cut off, which is judgment. Uh, that is a picture that is used quite often. Uh, Jesus uses it, uh, uh, and in this uh, passage as well, it is about the fact that you are cut off from God, cut off from life. This is the final judgment. Um, and so fruitfulness is actually something that is really important. Why does God do the cutting and pruning? Is because He wants His vine to really be super fruitful, right? And so there is the cutting off of those that don't bear fruit, but then there is also the pruning. And remember that the pruning and the cutting doesn't seem very different. They are both a form of aeration. Aere being the Greek word, not the... Uh, uh, so yes, you, you get it. So um, there's the aere, but there's also the cathare. And so when God comes and the desire for fruitfulness is cutting, but it's also pruning. And there is both of this, but then the interesting, super encouraging thing that Jesus then brings. Because I think that when we use that verse and we talk about uh, the cutting and the pruning, sometimes we sit down and we wonder, have I been cut or have I been pruned? Yeah. Right? Anyone goes, oh man, God's really cutting me. It doesn't feel like a prune, feels like a cut to me. Something that I really like, I'm being cut off from that. Or, but Jesus then goes, no, you are already clean, catharoid, because of the word that I've spoken to you. You see, how this whole process works, how the cutting and the pruning works, comes down to how we receive God's word. The cutting and the pruning uses the same shears, and I think that the shears are the Word of God. My Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing soul, dividing bone and marrow, or whatever that verse is. God's Word is the Word that comes, and it either cleans, or it prunes, or it cuts. And so what we have here is this idea 
that Jesus is truly fruitful, that when we are attached to the vine, that is how we find fruitfulness. And God's Word is what helps us to stay in the vine in order to achieve that fruitfulness that God is looking for. So let's continue because Jesus begins to explain this more. Verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. So Jesus now is going, okay, guys, I'm, I'm going to explain this. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you cannot do anything. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So that is a picture of judgment. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So the branch's purpose is literally to bear fruit. If the branch doesn't bear fruit, then there is no point to the branch. And so many of us are trying to bear meaningful fruit apart from Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying, that kind of fruit Firstly, it is not real fruit. You are withering. And this is something that already in the upper room discourse, uh, Jesus has already indicated this idea that there's a separation between the cosmos, the world, the world that is in rebellion to Jesus, and uh, Jesus who brings life and light and peace and hope. And so what he's saying here is that you cannot bear life if you are living apart from life. And so he says, abide in me. And there is this natural thing. Fruitfulness comes when we are abiding in Jesus. How do we abide in Jesus? He's kind of somewhat indicated. We're going to keep looking into this. It is about his word. And when we have his word, he's cleaning us. And we are therefore in uh, uh, abiding in him. And therefore, fruit will come or has already come because God is glorified when people have fruit. He's not bearing you fruit so that you get to be the millionaire living on your yacht in the middle of nowhere. No, that is not the fruit that Jesus is talking about. It's fruitfulness that brings God glory. And so we need to be careful that we watch what we think fruit is. Because if we think that fruit is fruit um, in this context, but you switch it to another context, you think about it in a third world nation where there's persecution of Christianity, is that fruitfulness that you're talking about still fruitfulness in that context? If not, it is culture. You're fruitful according to culture. If you think that fruitfulness is job security, having a mansion, having a Lamborghini, or nowadays five Teslas, (laughs) and then you go into Ukraine right now, is that fruitfulness. If that's not fruitfulness, that's the world. But even so, in the same way, I am generous, I am giving, I'm all of that kind of stuff. Uh, I am kind. I serve people. I don't live beyond my means. I live under my means so that I get to be generous. You bring that into Ukraine. Is that still whole true? That's fruitfulness. 
And therefore, we have to keep coming back to the command that Jesus gives us. And we're going to read that again today. That you love one another so that everyone will know that you are my disciples. The love that we have for one another translates to any culture, any country, any place, whether persecuted or whether prosperous. That is the defining point of Christianity. And that is fruitfulness. The fruitfulness that we have is how we love, how we give, how we receive, how we stay in community. That is what it means to be fruitful. But there's something super interesting here. Because in verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, right? So the words clean and the words abide. This means that we don't make one decision for Jesus and that's it. And then you're already connected. The words continue to abide. The words continue to wash. The words continue to convict. The words continue to do its work in us. The words are abiding in us, and it brings us closer to the vine. And then what happens? Jesus says, verse 7, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And so as I was looking into this, I was like, man, you know, John uses a bunch of phrases. He puts them together, and then it's like, hang on, there was a jump here. All right? There was something that doesn't quite click. And so you have to really think about it. And this is what, um, in, in, in my uh, reading, one of the things that is super exciting about this for me is that uh, D.A. Carson, a theologian that I'm quoting lots because his work is just so helpful, but he says this, this suggests that the fruit of the vine imagery represents everything that is the product of effective prayer in Jesus' name. Fruitfulness, because Jesus said this, if you abide in me, my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, by what? By your asking and it being done. By this, my Father's glorified, that you bear much fruit. What is the fruit that you're asking and is being done? That we are living in God's will and we are attached and abiding in God's will. See, the abiding and the obeying isn't so much about you doing, but it's about you actually praying and simply living out of that faith that God is doing something in that. Doesn't mean that you don't do stuff. No, the Bible doesn't allow you to just be like, I'm just praying in my room by myself. I pray that I will love people today, but I will not leave the room. I pray that everyone will receive the gospel, but I will not talk to anyone. No, the Bible doesn't allow that. When we pray in God's will, you will suddenly realize, God, you've called me to the lost in this will. You called me to be a solution to that issue that I saw. You called me to be a part of something greater. And then there'll be the times where like you called me to do things that I'm not comfortable about. And so the faith is that God has graced me to do the things that I'm not good at. The things that I don't like to do. The things that used to wound me in the past, but he still calls me to lean in. And that is so true when it comes to loving one another. The reason why we don't love is because we're wounded. The reason why we don't love is because there have been hurt and disappointment. And people are unpredictable. Some, I saw this the other day and it blew my mind. This a preacher who's a really amazing teacher said that when you say yes at the altar, you're not saying yes to what you know, you're saying yes to what you don't know. And I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> and when we have this mindset, I'm saying yes to what I know, then the things that we don't know about the person 
possibly the things that grate against you and the things that you don't like, you're saying, I didn't say yes to that. Yes, you did. You said yes to the whole person. And by saying yes to the whole person, you're saying yes to the things that don't sit so well with you. Oh, so when we have those moments as I don't want to love because I get hurt all the time, pray about it. God, grace me. And you know what? That's in God's will. So when we say, God, grace me for this relationship that really sucks the life out of me, what does faith look like? Staying in that relationship. Living it out. That seems to be what it says. But hang on, there's more in this because everything that we're asking, Jesus keeps bringing it back. But there's so many different elements, even in the upper room discourse. Uh, so, so Carson writes this, you know, everything is the product of effective prayer in Jesus' name, including obedience to Jesus' commands, which we talked about, the experience of Jesus' joy, uh, the experience of Jesus' peace, the love for one another, and the witness to the world. All of those are a product of effective prayer. Yesterday, I saw something that really did my heart good. We didn't just run through 12 hours of prayer that was just like, yeah, okay, cool, we, we did this and all good. But the people who came, it, 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 for me, it felt like this was not just going through the motions. It felt like there was an, an investment, there was a zeal, and there was a fervency. Let me tell you, that's going to be effective. There's going to be a shift in our church. There's going to be a shift in our world. Why? Because when we ask in Jesus' name, it will be done. When we are abiding in His will, it will be done. You've got to get into those places where we are seeking God's heart, not just by yourself, but together. Because the other thing that really spoke to me was quite often when someone said something, someone else was like, yeah, I'm actually feeling the same thing. There was an encouragement because we're actually all seeing things from different perspectives, but we're seeing the one God. And the revelation of God's heart became more and more clear when we came together to pray. Some of you are praying by yourself and trying to discern what God is saying by yourself, and you think that you're connected to the vine. The vine doesn't have one branch. It's got billions of branches. And maybe if we look at what that other branch is doing, say, oh, that's what God is saying. That's what it means to abide in Him. What if that is part of being part of the vine? Isolated Christianity is not Christianity. Isolated Christianity is individualistic. And it will lead to pain and frustration and disappointment that the world sucks so much. I've got to keep going. Verse 9. Now, Jesus begins to really unpack the vine metaphor. And he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. The abiding, now Jesus begins to bring it into love. Yep. But let me tell you, you're not going to like this. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I kept my Father's commandments and I abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be complete 
in you and that your joy may be full. So here we have a few different elements here. Jesus' talk about uh, uh, um, the vine is actually about his love. The vine is a metaphor of his love, is that connectedness, is that dependence on the vine. That is the love. It is to abide in love. But the love that he is talking about is his commands. I want you to think about it. Let, let's sit with that for a moment. I abide in Jesus' love by obeying all of his commands that is written in the Word of God. How many people here were like, yeah, man, that's so good? Or how many of you went, huh? That's not how it works. That's not how love works. Love and commands don't go together, except in Fifty Shades of Grey, and that's this weird crap. You know, we don't go there. But that's because we are messed up in our understanding. We're not going to a masochist. We're not going to some weird, broken person for that kind of love. We're going to the author of love, the one who is called love. And he says, if you love me, obey my commands. We don't get to freaking choose which part of the Bible we obey. We don't. Because that's not love. You know, I think that we have a lot of meatloaf Christianity. What's meatloaf Christianity? I will do anything for God, but I won't do that. <laughs> Forgive your neighbor. Nap. We are crazy meatloaves in our, like, in our understanding of God. But the point of obeying Jesus is that his joy may be complete in us. Why is there depression and anxiety in the body of Christ? It's because we are not obeying the one who brings peace. Why is, I'm, look, I'm not trying to talk about, I'm not trying to downplay the fact that journeying through your wounds takes time. I'm not downplaying the fact that, you're, uh, that healing is, is not a one and done kind of a moment. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about the, 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 the illogical mindset that we can come to the author of life and say, can I rewrite your book? We are rewriting Roald Dahl's books and Enid Blyton's books to make it more palatable to our, to our palate and our culture. And we're doing the same to the Bible. We say this part of the Bible is offensive, so let's tone it down so that it's easier for me to digest. Oh, we can't do that. When Jesus says, go and make disciples, because that is what a disciple does, we don't get to choose that command. We don't get to choose whether we forgive or not. When Jesus says, the level that you forgive is the level that you'll be forgiven. We don't get to play around with that. When he talks about marriage and saying, this is the way that marriage should be, we don't get to change it and say, no, 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 I like marriage this way. But it comes back to this crazy thing called Abiding. And I've learned this, that abiding takes a lot of trust. If you don't trust God's words, you're not going to abide in Him. If you don't like His teaching, you're not going to abide in Him well. If you don't like how He describes what life should be, you're not going to abide in Him. And Jesus has got no problem with people saying, I'm going to walk away from this. There's the parable of the, of, of the prodigal son, which is not called by Jesus the parable of the prodigal son. We call it that. It was just the parable of the son that decided he had enough of his father and walked away. 
But then he realized that life wasn't found in the pigsty. So the question for us is whether we need to experience the pigsty before we come back to Jesus. Or whether we trust that Jesus truly has the words of life. And Jesus makes this really clear. He says that I abide in the Father's love and the Father's love abides in me. Why? Because I've obeyed the Father. Jesus was radical about this. Jesus said, I do not do anything I don't see the Father doing. For him, it was super clear. I'm not living in any way, shape, or form just simply for myself. I'm living according to the Father's plans. Now, some people take this way too far and say, I'm not going to do anything until the Father says so. And then what's the Father said to you? I, I don't know yet. I'm still figuring it out. And, and, and that's still not discernment. And we're going to do a whole series on discernment after this, okay? Because I think this is super important. Uh, but this is, this, is, this is so important that we understand that Jesus was active and moving and doing great things. But every single one of it, he did not bring for his own glory. He said, I'm doing this for my Father's glory. I'm doing this because this is what the Father wants me to do. If we would have that heart, we would be abiding in his love. Now, we're not Jesus. And so I think, this is my kind of take on it. This is, I don't think that Jesus is kind of black and white about the commandments and obedience. Not to say that we can take advantage of it, but I'm just saying that I think that Jesus was talking to a bunch of disciples that didn't get it right. In fact, just after this teaching, all of them ran away. They, they, they weren't perfect, but God still used them. But it was the heart of drawing close. It was the heart of saying, I am going to abide. The words of Jesus make sense, and I have to obey. I've got to move on, so uh, I'll let that sit with you because I think that's super important. Verse 12, this is my command. So Jesus brings this right back to the start of the upper room discourse. This is my command that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love than no one has than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus is once again trying to showcase and preempt and show his disciples this is what love is. This is the sacrificial agape love that we are all meant to have for each other. But then he, doesn't, then he switches it. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Pause. You are my friends if you do what I command you. How many people would have ever said that to someone else in their life? I wish I had the guts. I think I probably did in primary school, let's be fair. It's like, you're my friend. You do what I say. I was a bit bossy, probably. But how many people like friends that say this kind of stuff? Anyone? Anyone as a friend is like, you're my friend if you do what I command you. So what is Jesus actually saying here? Because I think that when we read that, we gloss over it because they're like, uh, no. That's not the loving God I know. If you're my friends, if you do what I command you, and then he goes on to say, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all uh, that I have heard from my Father I made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that should go and bear fruit. There we go, the fruit analogy is back, that your fruit shall buy, so that whatever you ask in my name, again, the whole prayer analogy comes back in again, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. But let's just camp on this uh, friend thing. So there are two ways to approach God. We are either 
his servant or we are in rebellion to him. I think we've got to get that straight. We're not dealing with another human being. We are dealing with the author of life. And if we want life, we serve God. Full stop. That's it. You know, we don't go to the, uh, we don't go to the one who actually has um, everything and say, if you like what I offer, then you come and be my friend. We're talking to the one who owns everything. And we're kind of going like, can you be my friend? You know that friend who was like super rich when you're in primary school, had everything, and everyone was like, can I be your friend? You're not so much asking the rich dude who has everything and is like super generous whether they want you to be their friend. You want what they got, right? And I'm talking about childish analogy, but when we bring this to the God analogy, why do we think that God wants to be your friend? Like seriously, there are two ways to approach God. You're either in rebellion to him or you're his servant. But what Jesus does here is switch it around and says, no, you're not just my servant anymore. You're not a slave to me. You're my friend. What we need to understand is that, especially for the Jewish mindset, friendship with God was something sacred. There were only two people in the whole Bible who were called friends of God, and that was Moses and Abraham. And this was so significant to the Jewish culture that people literally sat around and had debates about what Moses and Abraham didn't write about their revelations of God. Because they went, these two were friends of God. God revealed something to them. You see, a friendship isn't so much about the exchange of goods. It isn't about a transaction. It's about a sharing of heart. It's a sharing of thoughts. And in this way, we see this. Jesus says, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. So even in the New Testament, we find, I think it was Paul that describes this and says that even the angels wish to understand and to see God's plans, but that has been revealed to you. We forget that the revelation of God is something that was meant for his friends. And this is something that God brings to us. His word is his revelation, and this revelation is what makes us his friends. And yet, sometimes we treat this revelation like dirt. This is the contract, if you will. This is what brings us into friendship with God, and we rubbish it, we change it, we make it more easy for us rather than understand. This is God writing this stuff and saying, come on, this is, I'm revealing to you my heart and my plans. Remember, even when uh, uh, God was going to punish Sodom and Gomorrah, what does he do to his, uh, with his friend? He reveals his heart to his friend. Moses, uh, sorry, was it Moses? No, it's Abraham. Abraham had no need to know about God's plans for that. But God decided to go to his friend to have a chat with him. And Abraham knew that this wasn't just some normal dude. He knew it was God. And so he kind of negotiated with God on behalf of other people and was successful. That's the kind of relationship that God wants with us. Let me give you another way to maybe understand this. You are my friends if you obey my boundaries. How many of you would actually practice that? I think it's a good idea to practice that. If you come into my house and you smell like you haven't washed for seven days, you're terrible to my cat, 
and you swear at my son, you are crossing my boundaries and I will kick you out. You're no longer my friend. I might maybe give you a chance. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not going to be shamed again. You are not going to be my friend. If you have a person who's constantly talking you down, constantly being rubbish to you, is that really a good friend? Is that someone who loves you and you love back? No, that's a relationship that is actually dysfunctional. So why is it that we can go to God and say, I want you to obey my boundaries when we don't obey God's boundaries? When he said, this is the way that I created life. This is the author. This is the way I created life. Oh, I don't like that though. And it's like we bring our stinky, poopy-filled nappies into God's house and we go like, you said that you love me. We're being absolute toddlers sometimes when it comes to the things of God. No, God is saying, I've got boundaries. And that, the thing is that those boundaries protect you and make you fruitful. Now, we've also got to understand something. At no time does the Bible, according to Carson, say that Jesus or God is a friend of anyone. We are Jesus' friends, we are his friends, but it doesn't say that Jesus is our friends. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross and said, this is where life is. And then he allows us in to his circle. Stop trying to get Jesus to enter our circle, and let's get into Jesus' circle. That's what this is all about. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. So come back to this. Sometimes I think when we read these passages about abiding in God, we're like, oh, to abide with Jesus. And we love the worship set this morning. It was so good. I was abiding in God. Jesus says, go forgive that person who hurt you. No, I am here abiding with Jesus. Go speak to that other person and actually be friendly. No. Oh, he loves me. No. How do we abide by having his words and his commands abide in me? What is the command that we love one another? And let me just reiterate, I've been saying this since week one, that this love for one another is to love and be loved. To be in community is to love and be loved. It's to reveal and to, uh, to allow others to see, and it's also to come. And you say, I don't like that. That's okay. Most of us don't. Most of us have people that we like to open up to and love, and yes, it's a process, but are you trying? Are you taking steps to obey? Are you praying about it? Are you actually dealing with it? The hurts and the pains, Jesus says that I'm the one who binds a broken heart. You stop guarding your broken heart and bring it to Jesus. But verse 18, this is where it shifts. It says, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. Why? Because the world is in rebellion. We talked about that. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of this world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This all makes sense. If we're living according to the world's ways, there would be no persecution. We would just be, actually, you know what? It still sucks because everyone is a dog-eat-dog world and all of that. Anyway, 
But if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. If, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know who sent me. Now, Jesus has just been talking about abiding, and all these will be done in my name for you, and, and, and you have joy, you have peace, and all of that. But he still says that there's persecution, all right? So persecution is not part of this whole thing of like, I want to avoid pain in life. Christianity is not about avoiding pain, all right? Let's just put that out there. Um, let's go, verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for sin. Now, that's a bit weird. What Jesus is saying here is that he's saying that he is the revelation of God's life and of God's ways. And so basically, because he's revealed that this is the commands, people now have no excuse to say this is how I can live. Basically, because you sat here in this room and I told you that the command is to love one another, if you're not loving one another, you're living in sin. So sorry for coming. <laughs> I stuffed you all up. But if you came last week or listened to some podcast, you will probably have heard that. But what we're talking about is that Jesus interrupted the normal way of living and he's saying this is the way of life. Would it have been better for Jesus not to have come and to reveal to us what is sin and what is not sin? No. No, we would all be destroying each other. And that's where the world would be at. Um, verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had done among them the works that no one else did, they would have been guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So I want to come back to this. How are you abiding with Christ? When he says that if you love me, you will obey my commands. You are my friend if you obey my commands. My word is the thing that washes you clean. It cuts off the stuff that needs to be cut off. It breaks off the dead things in your life that there's no point hanging on to. And this is how you come to me. This is how life comes to you. Can I get the band up this morning? We've been singing about surrender, and I think sometimes we sing about that without really thinking about it. God asks us not to surrender to things that we don't necessarily like. We surrender to things that we control. That's the whole point of surrender. So what are the things that you are controlling that God is saying, no, 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 that's for me to work in your life? See, fruitfulness doesn't come from you controlling things. Fruitfulness comes from being connected to the vine. How do we connect to the vine? By obeying His commands. How do we obey His commands? By staying in His Word, by praying, by pursuing God and His purposes, by knowing the Father's will, by coming close to Him. And He says that as you're doing that, that is how you know that you are in my love. And I think that there are some people here that have a, tr a problem with some of these things. I really sense that God is speaking to people who have had a knot in their stomach for days, if not weeks, about whether God loves you or not. Well, you've heard the word Jesus says, that greater love than this. There's no greater love than this, than God giving His life for you. So God already loves you and He's asking you to obey not because that gives you access to His love as though it's a transaction, 
but it brings you into his circle. It brings you into abiding. It brings you into a place of connection. It brings you uh, away from the death and the destruction that you've been living in. And all of us have death and destruction based on the wounds that we've experienced. All of us have been hurt at some point, and all of us have hurt others at some point. That is not the point. The point is that Jesus gives us a way to be clean, to abide, to be in His love, to access His joy and His hope. And He's saying, all you have to do, which is not that simple, so obey my commands to come to me and to pray, to come to me and see me as your source. And that's where fruitfulness will be. If we can stand, everyone, I'm just going to pray and I'm going to close our gathering. But I sense that there's some people that need to do business with God. I sense that there are people in this room that there's something that needs to be let go of. There's some things that need to be pruned off your life because those things are not bearing enough fruit. Those things are not doing uh, to the level of what God uh, can see for your life. You want meaning. You want purpose. You want to be free from anxiety. You want to be free from depression. This is a starting point. Come to Jesus. Stop trying to work this out by yourself. Stop trying to be perfect in your own strength. Stop trying to get there. Stop working it out according to your emotions. Oh, I feel this. I feel that. Jesus didn't say, if you love me based on how much you like me. Jesus didn't talk about like. I don't love Beck based on my feelings. I love Beck based on my covenant and my commitment to her. In fact, the love that I show back most is at the moments and the times I feel it least, but I still serve. So some of you might not be feeling it. Some of you, the enemies in your ears whispering and telling you all the things that you've done wrong. You feel dirty, broken, and useless. But Jesus is saying, it's my word that washes you clean, and this is my word that I have given my life for you, and therefore you are clean. And I'm bringing you to the vine. So I'm going to pray. I, I, I sense that God wants to move in people's lives this morning. So let's go for it. Dear Jesus, I thank you for your great love. I thank you for your great, great love. I thank you that it has been made available. It has been revealed. It has been made known to every single person. And I pray, God, that for every person that is feeling your condemnation, oh, wait, I pray that they will understand that there's no, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in you. But God, I pray as well that as a church, we will take on your commands as though it is the thing that brings us life because those those things are what washes us clean and helps us to live this life that you called us to. And so God, I pray, I pray, I pray that we don't take this flippantly. I thank you that it is also a promise that when we abide in you, you will abide in us. As we draw near to you, you draw near to us. So I thank you, Jesus, that in this moment, even right now, for those who are drawing near to you, you are drawing close to them. I pray that your love, your grace, your peace, your joy is flowing and is available for every person. I thank you, Jesus, and I pray this in your name. Amen. Awesome. If you want to go enjoy some morning tea, go for it. But if you sense that God is doing something in your life, why don't you come on up? 
and our team are going to pray because I believe that there's breakthrough here available for you this morning. Maybe you are stuck in some way, shape, or form, and, and, and you're not sure where to go. Well, you know what? Maybe God knows the way better than you do. And that's okay to say, Jesus, I need some help today. So I thank you for your time and for listening to, to me, and, and, and we'll see you in the foyer. Uh, uh, let me just close in prayer. Dear Jesus, I pray a blessing upon every person. I thank you that your grace is enough for all of us. I pray that we go live the life that you called us to, to shine your light to our, uh, into our world, God. And we pray this in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.